Acts 17. This is a passage that we've looked at uh, years ago. And in fact, it's a passage that we looked at when uh, one of the missionaries that we support, Dan Rogers, uh, shared with us last time they were in town. Uh, And the title of the sermon, as you can see, is uh, A Christian Response to a Pagan Culture. I, I, I think the reason I want to go over this passage is because we're feeling it all the more that uh, this, this culture that we are living in is sliding down the mountain faster and faster and faster and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and becoming more and more pagan. So I thought it would be a good reminder for us of how we were to think about the pagan culture that we live in and how we are to interact with it, how we are to respond to it so it's kind of this question, how is a Christian or a church to respond or interact with a culture that prides itself on, on moral and spiritual and intellectual and philosophical and educational superiority, and yet at the same time takes a detached and relative view or approach to the central issues of life, and at the same time regards anyone who takes a firm and serious position on such things as uncivilized and uncultured and uneducated and unreasonable. I mean, to state it more simply again, is how are we to interact with a pagan culture? the pagan culture that we live in here in Anchorage, Alaska. And I think this passage helps us with that. Uh, Now, we're going to be focusing our attention, not just today, probably two or three weeks in this passage overall, but it will be on the second half of verse 16 through 34, but I thought it would be good for us to read from the beginning of chapter 17. Let me give you the, the... where we're at in Acts. So in Acts 16, Paul started his second missionary journey. And uh, he first went to all the cities and places where he had taken the gospel on his first missionary journey. And that was uh, essentially in the area of Asia Minor. To us today, that would be Turkey. And so on his second missionary journey, he goes back to all of those places to see how the churches are going, to establish leadership within those churches and so on, and uh, just to encourage, uh, encourage them. And then the Lord opens up through a vision the, the, that he was to take the gospel to an, another unreached area. And so he goes into Macedonia which would be in modern-day Greece. It was broken into different areas under the Roman Empire. But Macedonia, he went to Philippi first, and then uh, to Thessalonica, and then to Berea, and now he ends up in Athens. So that's kind of where we're at. So the the first declaration in this passage is going to be in Athens. But let's read from verse 1 of chapter 17, just kind of leading into this and partway through uh, our text that we'll begin to look at today. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on 
three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that would be Paul and Silas, the missionary team, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas, not, in, not mentioned here, but that would be Timothy and Luke as well, whoever else was on the team. They sent them away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if, the, see if these things were so. Many of their, them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who, were conducted, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as, as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler have to say? Others, others said he, he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we may know that, uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious, for I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since 
He himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that if they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Uh, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So here we are. Paul's in Athens after having started in this new territory in Philippi, having been beaten and thrown in prison, put in stocks, and God having uh, rescued them and saving the Roman jailer. They were kind of driven out of there. Uh, out of Philippi, and they went to Thessalonica, and they shared the gospel there over a period of weeks, and then the uproar, and then get him out of town before he dies, goes to Berea, shares in the synagogue again, preaching the truth, and, and, and you, you heard it, people from Thessalonica, Jews from Thessalonica, come to Berea, and start an uproar there as well, and so he goes to Athens, and and, uh, and and there is where we find him. And you know, as you, as you, as we read Athens, the very mention of the city's name conjures up images of a place that, in that time period, was the center of all things superior. I mean, few cities uh, have equaled the splendor of Athens. Uh, actually, beginning in the fifth century B.C. and lasting for hundreds of years, it began to experience what was later called the, the, the Golden Age. It was a center uh, of arts and literature and philosophy. It was the home of men that you've heard their names before, Socrates, or as Bill and Ted said, Socrates. You know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Pericles and Sophocles uh, and many other prominent philosophers and writers and and politicians of the ancient world. And it would widely be referred to as the cradle of Western civilization, which we are part of, right? West, Western civilization. And, by the way, interesting to our ears, it was the birthplace of democracy, something that we hold so highly. Athens also gloried in its literature and its art, I mean, many of the classical plays and legendary works of literature were written from that city and during that time. Uh, 
Praxiteles developed the, the classical forms of human sculpture that continued to be imitated later on in Europe all the, all the way through the time of Michelangelo. Where did he get those you know, wonderful ideas about sculpting that famous David statue and, and many others? It came out of Athens. Athens was also glorying in its educational and philosophical schools, included those started by, by Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics that we read about in this text are, are from those schools. Now, Athens also celebrated its, its many gods and goddesses. Pausanias, who is a Greek traveler and geographer, who wrote extensively on Greek cities, and particularly on the city of Athens, somewhere between 50 and 100 AD, so after or around the time that Paul was there at the beginning, and then four decades after that, he described Athens as filled with temples to the gods, like Zeus and Athena and Demeter and Ares and Poseidon and Apollo and Hades and Artemis and Hermes and Dionysus and uh, Aphrodite and Eris and many more. And the temples were not simply wonderful works of architecture. It's, you know, it's kind of how they're viewed today, even though they're just columns and, you know, a mere example of what it used to be, been nothing like the glory that it had, but actually they were places of worship, worship and service to the pantheon of the, of the gods. And according to Pausanias, the streets of Athens contain statues of every kind, I mean, uh, stone, marble, wood, gold, silver, and they lined the streets of the city, and he and others wrote that it was easier to meet a god or a goddess on the streets of Athens than to meet a man. There are indications that while there was a population of somewhere around 10,000 people at the time that Paul was there, there were estimates of some 30,000 idols within the city, statues. Though much of the glory of the golden age of Athens had already passed, actually, by the time Paul visited. It was still a beautiful city, and it was rec still recognized as the intellectual capital of the world. And yet, as Kent Hughes wrote, uh, despite all her glory, Athens was empty because she was living on the memories of the past. In philosophy, she simply repeated the echoes of men long ago. Her art was no longer innate overflow, but a lingering reflex, proud, glorious to the eye, but dead. So it's to a dying city. Did you get that? It's to a dying city, in many ways, a dying city, that Paul comes with the message of Jesus and the resurrection. So to a dying city, really dead in its paganism, Paul comes with the message of Jesus and eternal life. Wow, that's awesome. Now, the point of all of that sharing is 
not simply give a brief synopsis of the, the history of Athens, though it might help us to understand what Paul's facing while he's there. But the reason I bring it up is to help us understand not the text of Scripture that we're going to examine, but more so to, so that in understanding it, we'll come to grips with how a Christian is to respond to a pagan culture, or how a church is to interact with a pagan culture how we should be responding to the pagan city in which we live. That's right, Anchorage, Alaska is a pagan city. You know that. Now, our text is easily divided into three parts. Not our text for today, but our text for today and however long it takes us to get through it. Three recognizable uh, parts to it. First, we have kind of a prelude to Paul's message to the pagan city in verses 16 through 21. And in these verses, Luke explains the setting and the initial reactions, right? The setting in Athens and the marketplace and so on. And the initial reactions between Paul and the people of Athens, people of this pagan culture. That's like they used to play the Sea Wolves shootout games. Second, we have Paul's proclamation to the pagan culture, verse 22 through 31. And in, it's, a, it's a short sermon. I don't think we have all of the sermon. Uh, it's, just, it's just in me that no preacher preaches a sermon this short. Except for Steve when he had his brain issue. But, you know, I, I think Luke writes down what we need to know that Paul said to the people. Just my conclusion, not, you know, I could be wrong. What we have is sufficient. But in this short sermon, he both contextualizes his message and at the same time contends for the truth of the gospel. And then third, we'll see how the people in that pagan culture responded when confronted with the truth of the gospel, when confronted with Jesus and the resurrection and and the need for repentance and faith. And that's just the last three verses. So we begin with the prelude to Paul's message. And I think, I, I think it starts out with us recognizing that Paul is alone. He's alone in this pagan city. Look at verse 16 again. Now, while, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now, who is them? Well, we know it's Timothy and Silas and probably Luke as well, who is the one who wrote this and did travel with Paul on his second missionary journey. He's the, the, kind of the biographer, if you will. And as you read through Acts, you can tell when Luke's with Paul and when he's not because he'll write in the first person uh, when he's with him and kind of third person when he's not. We, they, or him, that kind of thing. So he's there waiting for Timothy and Silas and Luke, whoever else was with the team. And, and, and then his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. So I think there are three things to note about this inner introductory verse to this section Um, and that it is first of all that Paul is alone in Athens Silas and Timothy had remained at Berea Paul was the 
the point of all the uproar, right? He was the primary preacher, uh, and while well, Timothy and Silas, no doubt, were sharing the gospel with people, Paul's the, the hot target. And so, you know, Timothy and Silas could stay there and encourage those who had believed and perhaps establish a church. And, and, and Paul was ushered out of the city because they were fearful that he would be killed by the mobs. And, and they had already been on an extended trip. Understand the second missionary journey started out in Asia Minor visiting all the cities uh, that he had previously visited and taken the gospel and started churches. And, and so that you know, this missionary journey was probably in length about two and a half years. Two and a half years. Where exactly he's at in this, uh, I'm not sure of the exact time, but he's already spent uh, time, he and the team, on an extended trip and uh, going to the cities. And, and then they journeyed into Philippi and Thessalonica and, and then Berea, which doesn't seem, as you read, to take a whole lot of time. But he's now in Athens. And uh, he would go from Athens to Corinth, which is across the Aegean Sea there, and, or uh, just up above, I'm sorry, just up above Athens, and Sincrea, before heading back to Jerusalem. And on that journey back, he would visit some other cities like Ephesus and so on. However, Silas and Timothy, they had remained in Berea when Paul had, you know, was forced to, to, to leave because of those antagonistic Jews in Thessalonica. Now, this could be nothing more than Luke giving some detail to a good story. I mean, you know, a good storyteller. Maybe that's what he's doing. But it is striking that Paul is seen in, in, in the book of Acts in particular as one who liked to travel and minister with a company of people, not just himself. His personality seems to be such that having co-laborers serving with him was an important source of encouragement and uh, edification. Now, I, I want you to know, just from a pastor's perspective, I'm, I'm glad that I'm in a, in a church where we have a, a multiplicity of elders. We have four of us. We serve together. I need the encouragement. I need the edifying. I need, I, we, we, we do as leaders. And Paul was like that. And like my personality is such that I, I have no problem being alone. I kind of like being alone. Uh, and sometimes it, it seems like my wife and I, we both like being alone to some degree. We're alone in our house even though we're in the same house. You know. So Paul seems to be more like the kind of person that needed to bounce things off of people. And and so here he is, he's all by himself. And it may be that Luke's inclusion of this information is intended to highlight or help us understand how being in Athens by himself impacted his reaction to the pagan culture uh, in that city. So let me ask you a question. I know the answer to it. It's kind of a rhetorical question. Do you ever feel alone? ever feel isolated? I think in the last year that probably has been more true than any other time in our lifetime. You ever feel like there's, there's, there's no other follower of Christ where I'm employed? I, I, I 
expect that that could be true for some of you. Um, no one else in your family has repented and placed their faith in Christ. You're the sole believer within your family. Maybe, you know, you, you, you feel it's more difficult when you're around uh, unbelievers because they're certainly not shy about expressing their pagan views. I mean, yap, 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 yap. And sometimes with great hostility if you share your faith. So I think having others are around us who believe as, as we do, have the same values as we do, and are engaged in the same kind of activities as we are can be a great encouragement. Amen. Walking hand in hand in life. Yeah. Brothers and sisters. Yeah. In, the, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It's so critical for us. And listen, we, we should not allow things to break that bond. You know, we just didn't, shouldn't. So lock your arms. Uh, I'm talking metaphorically. Lock your arms. Lock your hearts together in the Lord. Let's not think that we're isolated. Now, listen, sometimes we're in a physical location where we are the only believer. And you feel that isolation. So one last encouragement on that note, I would say, just remember, you're never alone. You know, other believers may not be around you all the time that you can receive that encouragement from, but you're never alone. Jesus walks with you. The Holy Spirit is indwelling you. You, I'm sure, probably have all seen or remember the footprints in the sand picture and little poem, you know, single, uh, you know, or two sets of footprints walking in the sand, and then there's a single set of footprints walking in the sand, and it's kind of like, the Lord is walking with it. Where are you, Lord? Did you leave me? It's like, no, the truth is he was carrying us. The single footprints were his because he's burying us along as we're facing life's difficulties. So we have one another. Praise the Lord. More importantly, we have the Lord Jesus. He will never leave us or forsake us. Secondly, I note the pagan culture provoked Paul's Spirit, right? That's what verse 16 said. While he's there waiting for them, his spirit was provoked in him. And I don't doubt that the cultural aspects of the city of Athens, you know, impressed the Apostle Paul. I don't think he was oblivious to the beauty and the splendor of the the architecture and the buildings. It must have been a fantastic place to visit uh, during that time just as you might think of places that you visited that aren't, you know, when I went to the Middle East with my wife and, and some other people, to be honest with you, I just wasn't, I, I got tired of seeing columns, <laughs> broken down structures. It was exciting for the first few days, and it was like, <gasps> oh my, this is getting, this is wearing on me, you know. And I wanted to visit the places where Jesus had been and so on and all of that, but then, I, then it was all the religiosity that was centered around. So I just got a little, I didn't like it that much. 
people have often asked me, would you like to go back to the Middle East and see all the sites again? I'm like, not really. I'd rather go to Hawaii. I'd rather lay on the beach and read a book than to look at columns torn down and, and, and see what I think is uh, almost paganism surrounding some of the holy sites. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you. From, I think it's well worth going one time. And, and for some people, it's well worth going many times. Just not for me. But, you know, Paul was like me, I think, or like you. He probably was interested in looking at the sites. You know, and Paul himself was from a, a pretty well-known city. Not well-known to us. You know, you might know it from reading the book of Acts. He's from Tarsus in Cilicia, which was like Athens in many ways. It was a notable influence in its world, especially in the areas of education and, and philosophy. And like any city of importance would have housed many temples to idols in honor of those gods. Strabo commented that Tarsus surpassed all other universities, such as Alexandria and Athens, in the study of philosophy and educational literature in general. It had academies of the Epicureans and the Stoics, a very uh, philosophical schools that Paul is facing in Athens. And Paul himself was thoroughly, uh, a thoroughly educated man, both in the Hebrew scriptures and in Judaism, also the Greek schools. He was well aware and taught in those. His familiarization with Greek thinking and schools of philosophies manifests itself in his sermons, even in this sermon, because he quotes actually from two Greek poets in making his case for the gospel. Probably your English text showed you that. In him we live and move and have our being, and then for we indeed are his offspring. Those are quotes from Greek poets. So Paul, being raised in such a cosmopolitan and amalgamated uh, city, was part of what God used in shaping him to be a man who could become all things to all men. He could become a a man under law to those who had the law, the Jews, and he could be a man uh, without the law to those who were without the law, the, the Greek world, the Gentiles. Notice, however, that that Paul did not approach his time in Athens as though he was on a tourist jaunt. You know, just going there to see the sights. But rather, he's a man concerned about the effects of the idolatry that he's seen upon the people of that city, that, that culture. He was not there on vacation, but was on a mission. A mission to reach the lost. Acts 20 uh, you know, Paul put it this way, you know, the only thing that concerns me is to finish the course of ministry that God has given me to testify to Christ. That was his sole purpose in life. Now, that didn't mean Paul didn't have other interests. But I would take it that we had to see that as our purpose in life, too. You know, isn't that what Jesus kind of said at the Great Commission? I'm sending you into the world to make disciples, to make disciples and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. And in Acts 1, you shall be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem 
or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what a ministry like uh, Perspectives is all about, is, is helping us to see that our life is all about this mission. That's why God's left us here. Why he didn't just take us out? He's not done reaching the people that he elected before the foundation of the world with the gospel, and he wants to use us to reach those people. And that's why Paul is in Athens. It's not, he's not there just because he had to get out of Berea. He's there because he knew God took him there. He used the circumstances of the possible riots and danger to get him to Athens where he could then share the gospel with people. And it's interesting, the grammar of verses 16 and 17 is such that Luke is kind of painting a picture with his words that it's something that took place over a number of days. It says, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive in Athens, that he was busy and he saw that the city was full of idols. Those phrases are written in what's called the imperfect past tense. It's not a single past event. It's an ongoing thing. He is there for a number of days. We don't know exactly how long, but it's not. He arrived there, saw it, you know, got in people's faces, preached the gospel, and then left. No, it's, it's happening over time. And, and the word translated saw, that he saw that the city was full of idols, that word is theoreo in the Greek, and it's a word that we derive the word theater from. So when you go to the theater, what do you do? You observe. You pay attention uh, you know, as to what's going on. You watch the continuity and the flow of things. And that's what he was doing as he's wandering through the streets of Athens. He's observing. Now, Pausanias described the temples there in Athens and said that as he, Pausanias, moved up to the center of Athens, there were altars on every hand. He declared that there were altars not only to all the gods, but also altars to and idols devoted to philosophy and beneficence and to rumor and to shame. So the Athenians were deifying not only man-made gods, but they were deifying human ideas and human capacities. So as Paul walked through the city, just think of it, go on the journey with him, okay? That's what we should do in these kind of texts. Go on the journey with him. As he's walking through the city, every little niche, every corner, every street, every walkway, every uh, you know, alley overflowed with idol images. Luke tells us that Paul's spirit was being provoked within him. And this word provoked, it shouldn't be toned down in any way. The NIV translates it as greatly distressed. And that's not really bad, but it's not the same as provoked. This word... Uh, refers to being severely angered and even enraged. It's like, is that Christian? Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. God was angered as he looked down at man in Genesis 6 and saw that every intention of their heart was evil from the beginning. God was 
terribly angered, enraged at the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. God was angered when Uzzah reached out his hand to touch the cart that was holding the ark. God was anger or enraged when Ananias lied about how much he had given and struck him dead. Yeah, it's a a Christian thing. It's, in fact, a God thing to get provoked in this way. And the more that Paul observed all the idols, the more agitated and angry he became inside. His spirit was offended by what he was seeing, the, the lie that exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for the images of man and birds and crawling creatures and so on. What well, we talked about a couple, two weeks ago out of Romans 1. His spirit was provoked, not only because he saw everywhere that the one true God was dishonored by the images, which could never truly represent him, right? That's why God said, you shall make no graven image. Why? Because no image can actually represent the invisible glory of God. You can't put it into an image. And so he saw that, but he also saw the hunger for the divine in the population. The hunger for the divine. But at the same time, the rejection of the one true God. So this is all mixed that's going on inside of him, and it's provoking his spirit. The temples and the idols showed that the people were made to worship. Did you know that that's true? God created us to worship. Now we all got corrupted at Adam's choice, but God created us to worship someone who is above and beyond us, the one true God. But all the temples, all the images demonstrated the degradation that ensues when people receive the lie of Satan over the truth of the one true God. Now, I wonder, I wonder, are we provoked in our spirit? in the pagan culture that we live in. Now, I know, I know that many of you are provoked in your spirit. But what are you provoked about? Are you provoked about what the government's doing? You, you know? Are you provoked, you know, by things that you don't like? Are you provoked by you know, freedoms that we enjoy possibly being removed from us, you know, under our Constitution? Are you, are you, I, I think many people are, and many people are expressing it. They are angered. They are enraged over such things. But are we provoked in our spirit that the world that we live in, the culture that we exist in, the city that we dwell in is pagan? that it has abandoned, rejected the truth of the one true God for the lie. I pray that that would be so. I pray that that's what would be provoking us. What does Paul do 
because of being provoked in the spirit. Well, it begins to dialogue with the culture, right? We read in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's provoked spirit didn't lead to this. I'm out of here. Go to hell. It's kind of what it seems like a lot of people are doing in our culture. Just getting mad and upset and like, I don't know, maybe I'll just move to another country. I'm sure it'll be much better there. Listen, he didn't do that. Nor did it result in him using hateful speech towards the idolaters. James talks about how how is it that we could have blessings coming out of our mouth and then curses coming out of our mouth? It ought not to be so. And it is what's going on in our culture by many who profess to be followers of Christ. Rather, what Paul's provoked spirit, his righteous anger, motivated him to do is to actively engage whomever he could in dialogue. He he took whatever opportunities that God gave him to share the truth about the one true God who himself is the Savior. Says he reasoned, right, uh, with them in the synagogues and in the marketplace. And that word reasoned, I shared it with you a couple of weeks ago out of Romans 1. It, it's the word dialegomai uh, in the Greek. You don't need to know that. But it's the word from which we derive the English dialogue. Dialogue. And, you know, dialogue can be you talking to yourself. That's what we saw in Romans 1. People were were dialoguing with themselves. Now, maybe you don't do that out loud, but I bet you do that on a regular basis. I bet over the last week there's been a lot of dialoguing going on in people's minds and maybe in homes. Dialoguing about the decision that we have made as, as pastors. Or more likely it's dialoguing between people. And it is a word that, you know, was primarily used of speech in a public address, like giving a speech, like what I'm doing now, in a sense, or as in debating, arguing point for point in order to convince someone of one's position. I'm right, you're wrong. Clearly you see, well, I'm right, you're wrong. And that's not to say that Paul was being argumentative but rather that he was using his knowledge and his wisdom to engage people concerning the importance of knowing the one true God. That's what he was doing, dialoguing with people. And for some of us, that just is too frustrating to even engage an unbeliever. As I was thinking about this message, and even as I was praying this morning, I was asking God to forgive me for not taking the opportunities that he may give me. Now, I'm not out in the world a lot, interacting with lots of lost people like you may be. Uh, and and that's, 
sad. I hope it's not because I want to avoid them. I don't think it's the case. But there are times where I am around lost people, and I might hear an opportunity in what is said by someone to respond to them with, you know, maybe a leading question or a thought. And too often I don't take that opportunity. God, forgive me for that. God, forgive us as the children of God if we are not doing that. Well, as Paul is dialoguing, he found that there were three basic groups of people that he would dialogue with. There were those who were religious. In the text, it's the Jews and the devout persons. And the word devout, they're devout persons that's a Greek word that basically is referring to Gentiles who had believed in the one true God of Israel. They were going to their synagogue meetings, they were learning, but they had not yet gone through the whole process of proselytization. You get what I'm saying, whatever that word is. They hadn't become Jews as such, but they fully believed in the one true God, that there was only one. So there was that group of people. Then there were the common people on the street, right? The common people on the street. And, and the third group was the intellectual philosopher types, the Epicureans and the Stoics that are in, uh, in our text. Now, I, I, I'm going to stop there today. I didn't intend to go further, but I'm going to stop there today. And... Uh, We'll talk about those groups uh, some more next week. But I, I pray that you will join me in asking that God would reveal to us as a church through this passage of Scripture in what ways we are failing to be Christian in a pagan culture, in what ways that we are failing as a church in reaching out to a pagan culture. I pray that you would pray with me. I hope that you will pray with me. That God would change our hearts. That God would move us to confession, repentance, and cleansing over our hardness towards the culture that we live in. Our anger towards the government that is over us. Our dislike to such a degree that we avoid those people that have different values, different beliefs. You know, they're they're deceived by the enemy. They're really not the enemy. They feel like it many, many times. They do. I think we all feel that, you know, regarding our government. It's like, is it becoming my enemy? (laughs) It feels that way. The the, the decisions that are being made, they're they're coming against us, right? It feels like they're our enemies, but they are deceived people. They have bought the lie. How are they ever to hear the truth if we don't tell them? Romans 10, Paul says, how will they hear well, they hear if no one is sent. They have to hear the word of the gospel that can save them, set them free. 
bring them into the family of God. And, and I think we have not been doing a good job at that. I think we've been failing. I know I have. So that's enough for us to muse on, I think, for today and hopefully over this next week. And pray that as we gather together next week, God will continue to open these things up to us so that we'll become people who have the heart of Jesus for the lost world. So, Father, we come to you and we're thankful that we can. And we do so because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, as we look at the scripture, we see that every person is born a sinner. That they have an inherited sin nature. And they, they practically sin because they are already sinners. And, and that all people are like sheep going astray, walking away from God. Or actively rejecting the truth of the gospel. That is the world. That is the darkness that pervades in our world, our culture. We see that. But Lord, you want us to be a light. Thank you that you, for us who have come to know you through your son, we look at it, we say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you that you rescued us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your beloved son. You did that for us, Lord. You did it, and you did it through someone sharing the gospel with us or through reading the scriptures. And thank you for that. But Lord, help us to be a light in the midst of a dark world. Help us to be uh, showing the, the straight and narrow path to people who are caught up in a perverse and crooked world. Help us to be salt that would produce in people a desire to, to know more about the one true God, desire to know God. So Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for our self-centeredness. Forgive us for focusing so much on ourselves as a church body, what we're missing, what we're lacking, what we're doing, not doing, all of those things. Forgive us for that, Lord. And help us become what you intend us to be, witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his great name. Amen.